passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody. And welcome back. It is the June edition of Post Puroresu. I am John Pollock, along with W.H. Park, a man that uh, in not too distant of the future, we will be doing some shows live in person. I cannot wait for this. W.H., as we enter the cruel summer, it's not going to be so cruel uh, once you come back home to Toronto. Well, John, I got to say, I, I don't know about that. Sometimes when I go back to Toronto, like there are many things that make me happy about being back in Toronto. And then invariably I go to one of them, Pollock. (laughs) No, no, no. You are one of them, John, actually. Uh, But when I go, when I go downtown, it it just invariably something downtown just makes me like, Oh, I'm so glad I live in Japan. You know? So (laughs) I, I do recall uh, it's happened sometimes when I've had friends that have like been overseas for a long period of time. And then they, they come back here and it, and it's, it's quite the adjustment. I will say it is reverse culture shock is a true real thing. I've experienced it the first time I went to Japan in 2000, came back after a year and it was just so jarring to be back in Toronto. And and just, you know, the big thing for me was at the airport at Pearson and I'm just hearing not just English, but different languages. I'm just like freaking out and I'm like looking around. I'm like, Oh my God, there's multicultural like images around me. Yeah, I'm just like, because you're living in Japan, it's it's primarily like an ethnic, like monocentric, you know, mono ethnic culture here. It's like 97% of the people here are, are Japanese. You know, the 3% is like foreigners of different varying degrees. Like primarily it's like Caucasian people and then, you know, black people and brown people and like Asians like myself and then people from other, other countries. And it's, it's still jarring to hear those kinds of voices when I'm in Japan, but it's, it's more jarring because it's so common back in Canada. So I, I, I like that part. I miss multiculturalism, but I don't miss kind of like, uh, I, I miss the politeness of going to a convenience store <laughs> when I'm back in Toronto. Like I have that here. I don't necessarily get that in, in Toronto, you know? Well, I, I look for it's, it, it's almost like it's a, uh, it's a home and home series. You're going to come back here, and then several months later, Wei and I are going to go to you in Japan. Yes, so it's like we'll, we'll get to experience it both ways. I'm very excited about that more than like me seeing you guys back in Toronto because I'm used to that. I'm I'm excited to see how you are going to react to being in Japan, to being in Tokyo, to being in Corrigan Hall, and and hopefully we're going to get you to Shinkiba First Ring, to Totokan, to Ribera Steakhouse, John. Maybe we can get you a jacket. I, d- I don't think I'd qualify for a jacket, nor would I feel comfortable uh, taking one. I, I don't feel that's that's really my uh, my my area. But I'm I'm up for all these things that, that you're mentioning. So I'm very excited about this trip. This is something that I've wanted to always do, and uh, this is as good a year as any uh, to do it. So 
I want to try and see a, a lot of wrestling with you. Hopefully see some of Tokyo. And yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Two dome I'm very shows. excited about it, John. Do you, do you feel that you're going to go to both dome shows or are you going to decide closer? I think, you know, like you mentioned it to me that you were um, entering the pre-sale, right? For not for the fan clubs, but like they're op- they're actually opening it up to all the international like fans, like yeah. the same kind of, day as I'm tr- I'm starting to learn like all the um the tricks and stuff you have to do or advantages you also get uh, being like an international ticket buyer that you can apparently like get get certain um like ahead of the line on certain things. I I'm finding like I'm wait I'm not not finding out anything, but I'm waiting. For the fallout of the fan club members when they find out that international like fans have the same benefits with as them without having to pay the membership fees for the fan club, Maybe. it's going to be interesting, John. Uh, well, um, I'm sure we'll be talking very much because th- this entire year it's really built around you've got to do two dome shows in January, and it's going to be um, to me so much of a big focus of the G1. It's like what are your money matches going to be? Uh, coming out of the summer and being set up in the fall beyond uh, Liger's retirement, which even that in and of itself, how how you handle Liger's retirement, which I don't know if that can main event a Dome show. It can at least be one of the major featured matches, but how all these uh, moving parts are going to figure in. Is is AEW going to somehow work its way into the mix uh, out of necessity for New Japan when it comes to doing those Dome shows? There's so many interesting questions that are linked to booking that venue two nights in a row but getting back to your question depends on like what you and way want to do like you know like if you want to see both dome shows and the tickets aren't that expensive i'll, I'll do both dome shows you know depends where you want to sit but my my f- philosophy is that sitting in row five is the same as sitting in row 50 right. you know what i mean yeah so we don't necessarily have to sit close because most of the time I had good seats for, for this past January and I was looking at the monitor most of the time because, you know, it, it, it's just a thing where like the floors are just flat. You're not going to be able to see anything from the floors. I've done the floors before. I've been up in the 100 sections, which is the elevated section and it's so far away. It's like, you know, John, I've talked about the Tokyo Mudo before. It's not the best venue to watch wrestling in for, for me, for my taste of watching wrestling because I'm so spoiled by Korokin, Shinkiba First Ring, and all the other places I've been to, including now Osaka Joe Hall, which, by the way, is fucking fantastic to watch wrestling in. Well, let's segue right in there because you made it out to Osaka Joe Hall for Dominion last weekend, which, you know, one of the standout shows on the New Japan calendar each year. And uh, first of all, tell us about uh, your, your first trip to Osaka Joe Hall, because uh, I always love your, your venue breakdowns as much as your match breakdowns. So this is a newer building. So like you immediately you walk in and it's it's new. It looks so fresh, like the, the, the decor, the pay job, the carpeting, everything. And then you get into this into the arena area and it John, there's not a bad sight line anywhere. That's like great. it's it's beautiful. Like I sat in the one hundred levels, so I'm elevated. And all the seats are like uh, tiered, right? So like you, you don't have to worry about looking over people's heads or anything like that. And like the fans I was around with, there was like this rambunctious group of Japanese guys behind me just yelling out stuff all the time. But they were doing it in a way like it didn't bother me. Like it might like in different contexts. But it is a it's great air conditioning. If there was a humid day on on January June 9th, 
And I, I love it. I, I would want to go there. I want to try to go there maybe for the new beginning because they announced that they're going to do the new beginning there for the first time. Yeah, I, I love how this venue looks. Like you and I have talked about, you know, the the arenas that just they come through the screen. They have their own unique characteristics about them. And just when they have like that low angle shot ringside, and you, and you can see the uh, the ceiling. Like it just look, it just looks awesome. I, I think in I imagine in person, it's it's that times ten. It's also easier to get out of after the end of the show. Like I did Budokan three nights last last year for the G1 finals, and Budokan was like a pain in the ass to get out of after the shows because they only had one exit and they're hurting out everyone in the same exit. It was so annoying. This one, it was still one exit, but it just I think the doors were bigger, so people could get out of it quicker. So it was it was nice that in that sense. And it was full. It was full. The only part where they they don't like fill up make the seats available is where the hard camera is. And I was talking, I went with Jojo Remy and I went with Joel Abraham from the Super J cast and Jojo and I were saying that, and, and Joel as well, we were saying like the, the way New Japan does the hard cam is like, it's uh, across from the entrance, right? Mm-hmm. That's how they do the hard cams for all their major shows. And we were saying we prefer, like I prefer and like, like Noah style would be, they put the hard cam across from the, the, the major section of where the audience is with like the entrances are to the side, which is how I prefer they shoot it. And I, I think that would have been better. Uh, like if new Japan does that, but I understand why they do the hard camp from the entrance. Cause they have like the, the nice set designs and everything like that, but it was pretty full. Like there's tons of fans out in the uh, area of the park around Osaka Joe hall, because it's also part of Osaka Joe, which means Osaka castle. So there's lots of, you know, you'll be happy if you ever go there, John, because there's like a lot of, there's a Starbucks near there. There's a convenience store if you want to get some things, but the Starbucks are pretty full. People bringing like, you know, those trays, those portable trays that you can get from yeah. a coffee shop. It's Osaka Joe Hall just like sit, lean back with their iced coffees and sipping on those and stuff. It was pretty funny. Do you, do you think that the days of running big shows at Edeon Arena are like, they're, they're going to be now doing bigger shows here do you think that they have the the ability that they can they can run this place they're going to do it twice next year uh do you think that they can make this their their big osaka stop like uh, as big as doing uh this arena say in next year's g1 for instance on that that august 4th date there's a lot of advantages to edion arena because one it's like such a historical building for them in osaka Two, the location of edion arena is so convenient to like taking trains and like like osaka joe hall it it's a bit of a walk from there's like two major train stations and train lines that service the area but there it's a bit of a walk you know like whereas edion arena is like it's a 10 minute walk from the major station the major nexus in osaka which is called namba that's the area and namba is also just one of the busiest places in uh, osaka it's like downtown osaka it'd be like young dungness square in toronto if people are you know people from toronto might be aware of that or Times Square in New York City. This is like Namba in Osaka. So there's lots of restaurants. There's lots of shops. If you want to go shopping afterwards. Um, it's a really fun community area to not only just go watch wrestling, but do stuff before you go to the show and after you go to the show. So I don't think they'll ever stop running Eddie on Arena, but I do see them maybe saving Eddie on Arena for like maybe if they ever change some of the, the stops for like, say, I don't know, King of Pro Wrestling or, or a show of that level, they could do there. I think they'll keep the G1 
in Osaka in, in Edeon Arena because it's it can do two nights. It's easy for the wrestlers, I think, to go back and forth from like wherever hotel they're staying to the the venue, and they can go out afterwards, you know, easily. Whereas uh, like around Osaka Joe Hall might be a little bit more difficult for them to find place to like just go out after, to eat after or hang out. How was your vantage point during the Kota Bushi bump? Uh, did you were you able to see like the the full impact of it? Because for those watching at home, and I'm sure you've seen uh, the replay ad nauseum. I mean, the 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 replay in slow motion was horrifying. Among the more horrifying things I've seen in a pro wrestling match. So where I was sitting was actually uh, behind the entrance. The, so and then the bump was on the commentator side. Yes, which is on the other side of the ring. So. We when that when that bump happened, like you know, we were like, "Oh, did that go wrong?" I think it went wrong because he 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 was just lying on the floor, nothing was happening, and then they showed the replay on the screen, and we all just we were all like, "Oh, like myself, Joel, and JoJo, and JoJo's wife Christine." We all were like, like, we just looked at each other, and I and JoJo was the first one to say, "I don't care about this match anymore. That's I, I I'm checked out," and I was the same way. I'm I'm completely checked out at that point. It's like I can't enjoy this match anymore. And I know there's a lot of discourse from people like, oh, they're grown men. They know what they're doing. It's cool. If you feel that way, I don't I don't begrudge anyone who can enjoy the match after that. Don't begrudge me if I don't want to, like, if I just can't help myself. I, I'm like, I'm out of this. Joel was the same way. We were just like, we can't enjoy it anymore because, like, we're worried about him. You know, is, is his neck, what's wrong with, is his neck okay? Can he take any more bumps? Is he risking serious injury? Like, if he continues this match, that's their thing. Like all three of us are thinking that it, or all four of us are thinking that. So um, well, we didn't I, see I it. It's like totally like, it, it's just, to me, it's, you're putting the bar at, at such a level. And I know that we can make other examples of this, but it's like, I, I never want to leave a pro wrestling show where I, I may witness a guy break his neck again. And, you know, wrestling done normally runs that risk that you're, you're setting things to such a high level. And also, Kind of changing the field for the others that suddenly, well, well, this is now the standard, what we expect for an apron bump. And I just find that it's, I, I, I actually like that there was pushback on this match that the performers actually can look at this and say, this actually hurt the match. And if you're to me, a smart performer, you listen to your fan base and understand that. And this match probably would have been a match of your candidate without that spot. Uh, I also could have done without the headbutt, errant or not, that ended up swelling up Abushi's eye. But the main thing, of course, is the apron bump. And I don't, I think that there's a large portion of people that they've seen people get paralyzed doing professional wrestling. So when you are dancing on the line like that or just completely ignoring the line and jumping past it, I'm glad there is some pushback that we all just don't shrug our shoulders and state, hey, it's pro wrestling. And then when a tragedy happens, then we're all outraged and talking about how could this happen? Well, because you've been blinded to this stuff and you just, it, everything passes the smell test for you. I'm glad there was pushback for this. And I'll say like, you know, in my section, like there's fans who weren't bothered by it. They were still cheering for the, the continuation match. But, you know, I, I looked around and like, I think I, I'll say that there's a segment of the fans, the Japanese fans, who are 
like like us just checked out where we they're like they can't enjoy the match anymore so it's not just like you know people like foreigners watching this on tv or in the arena like that are like thinking about this it's also the japanese fans as well so well and it's i, I think as well the fact that it was koto Bushi that we know like this is this is not the end of this and it's hardly been the start of it either like this is a guy that has pushed those limits to an insane degree i'm glad he's okay but I think that's also not necessarily a justification uh, for doing that. I, I I look at Kodobushi and I think about what I enjoy about him. And yeah, part of it is like his, like, you know, you know, daredevil attitude. But I can enjoy a Kodobushi match where he's just like doing stuff in the ring. He doesn't necessarily have to do the more high risk stuff. I, I, I love his striking. I love when he like fires up and he starts palm striking people. I love like his kicks. I love like just doing regular Shermans in the ring. I the occasional like, okay, this is if the match calls for it and like the context of what they're trying to say in, in the larger story is, is, you know, requires something a little risky. Okay. I hope it's a calculated risk, but I don't need it. Like I, a lot of my favorite matches are, can be, can be confined inside those four ropes and i'm fine with that i i think that last year one of if not my favorite kotobushi opponents was zack saber jr i love the contrast between those two and abushi being able to adjust and do a zack saber jr match i mean he it, it brings out the more creative side of kotobushi i i don't think it's necessarily creative for him jumping off balconies it's just it's just him being like you know, um, not reckless, but like fearless. Whereas like him working with Zack Sabre Jr. or even like Tanahashi requires him to think about more, well, what, what do I want to do in terms of my wrestling skills? And like, and like, you know, countering the, the technical aspects of you know, someone like Zack Sabre Jr. or Hiroshi Tanahashi or even say like, um, you know, Okada. So I, I don't need it. You know, like my favorite opponents of his, like you, like are, are people who, Challenge him creatively, not challenge him in terms of taking all these risks like Kenny Omega or now Naito. Yeah. And I'm not naive either to the fact that, you know, there, there is a blurry line in there that we look at and, you know, as spectators of this, that we are somewhat complicit in looking and, and applauding, uh, some absolutely insane risks that, that performers take. Uh, for me, it's like, my line is really once you're going into significant like neck or head trauma, that's that's checkout time for me that I just can't uh, rationalize. I mean, we we can talk about like Kodobushi all we want, but then like on you know I, if someone's asking who's your favorite wrestler right now at WH, uh, Will Ospreay, like how can I justify that? But I feel you know like he's in a similar vein to Kodobushi, but I feel these days especially he's doing more calculated risks and he's not really trying to go for these like things that are going to, you know, pop the crowd because they've never seen him do it or they, it's going to, you know, scare them to an extent, you know? Uh, I don't want to spend all our time on Dominion, but some other um, notable things coming out of this show. We had uh, several G1 proclamations, uh, but the big one was Kenta walking out, which I thought was a, Genuine surprise that I don't think too many people uh, saw coming. Uh, maybe even Katsuyori Shibata uh, was not sure it was going to happen, I would say, five minutes into his point to the entrance as Kenta finally made his way out and came out, addressed the crowd, and then uh, 
alumni Chris Charlton gets a sit-down interview with him afterwards. That's right. He talked with him. Um, what was so, the reaction like, like in the building for, for this? Oh, it was huge. Like, so Shabbat comes on. So everyone's popping. They're like, oh, like, like among us. And like, I heard some people like were saying, oh, Shabbat is here. Oh, is he okay? Is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? And then he's just standing on the rep and he's pointing. As soon as he pointed, John, I knew it's Kenta. And then like, like you have to understand, like Jojo is a massive Kenta fan, like, like Ken is one of his favorite wrestlers he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time like he's the reason I really stuck it out with Noah even after the death of Misawa you know and we were like oh shit Ken is here and I happen to be wearing my takeover shirt so (laughs) someone someone said to me did you know I'm like no it's just a coincidence but I was so happy I was wearing it and then he came out and the place went mental John it was like one of the best it was a highlight of the evening like one of them, at least, you know, for, for me and a lot of the people in the arena and everyone knew who he was. Kenta, it's like I could hear Kenta calls from all around me. So like it was a really nice move by New Japan and from like Shibata and Kenta to come out at Osaka Johal. I just thought the little thing I loved about it so much is that they did it. Right, they had already put up the matchup board for Dragon Lee and Will Ospreay. So you're just assuming once Shibata comes out, that he's just going to second Dragon Lee to the ring. I just thought that little thing as well was just, it was the perfect timing for it as well. And it was, I, I just thought it was a, it was a great introduction. Thankfully, Kenta found the entrance. Thankfully. Yeah. Well, we, we, once we saw, once we saw like Shibata wearing a suit, we thought, oh, he's making an announcement. It's not just him seconding Dragon Lee. We, he's going to, and we, then we were like for the microsecond thought he's, he's announcing he's, He's all right. He he found a good hyperbaric chamber to, you know, heal his brain as well. And he's going to make his comeback to the G1. Thankfully, that's not the case. I don't know if I'd ever want to see him come back. But, the, the, you know, good moment, John. So how do you feel, uh, Kenta? Um, you know, obviously, I think this year's G1, it has a lot of intrigue because you have a lot of new faces in there. And I think that Kenta... He's as big a question of anyone. He's he's 38 now, but is obviously coming into this with a huge amount of motivation after the WWE run to have a, have a great G1. I have a lot of guarded optimism with regards to Kenta. Like the my big concern is that he was very injury prone yep. in, in in NXT. I mean, part one of those was not his fault. He was injured by like one of the guys, one of the trainees in NXT, and not not that person's fault either. It just happened. But like he had had the soldier sh- shoulder surgery. He has that big scar. I, I but I think like when he was on two hundred five live, he tried his best to like motivate himself, but he knew he was going to be stuck in that niche of the WWE. He was never going to get to show anything on the main roster, either on Raw or SmackDown. So I think he checked himself out. He came out. I was looking, watching him on the screen. I was like looking at him like in person, like with my own eyes in the ring. And I thought, my God, he looks motivated and he looks in great shape. He must have just went to the gym every day between like his release from the WB and to when he showed up at Dominion. He looked, he looked fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I th- I'm really looking forward to, you know, it's, you're in there with, a ton of talent. So standing out can be very difficult. Even like a great G1, that might only bring you like middle of the pack. But I think that there's going to be all eyes on this guy to see um, how he comes out of this. And I, I think that John Moxley was an eye opener to a lot of people that I, I don't know what necessarily the expectation level was, but you got a, an entirely different guy 
that came to Japan that you had seen in WWE the last three years? Well, with Kenta, like what I'm hopeful for is that you know he's going to be allowed to show his his like very unique charisma where he has a presence about him. I think that's what made him a star in Noah, and I think that's going to help him here. He wasn't allowed to necessarily show that in the WWE because um, he was he wasn't Kent anymore. He became Hideo Itami. And I think that was more than just a name change. I think that was like a, a change in the way he thought in the way he wanted to present himself to the WB. Like, I think he got, he was worried about, you know, getting a reputation for stiffing people, but he can stiff everyone in the, in New Japan. It's not a problem. They're expecting it. So I'm hoping just his charisma, his presence will carry him through and that he doesn't need to do high risk stuff. He just needs to kick people really hard, John. And he hits that first G, if he hits that first GTS, especially in Dallas, that place will go nuts. I think so, yeah. I, we'll see if he does a, a block match or he's in a tag team match. Uh, let's uh, close out. A- any closing thoughts on, on Dominion? Because I also wanted to uh, get some of your thoughts on the best of the Super Juniors. Well, John Moxley is super over in New Japan, John. That, that's he's He was super over in uh, Sumo Hall at the best of Super Juniors final. And he was super over in... Uh, in Osaka, there were a lot of fans, people just yelling out, Moxley, Mox, like that. People wearing his t-shirt, which you can't, I couldn't find yesterday at the uh, New Japan house show here in Numazu. Uh, it was sold out, so they don't have any more right now. Wow. Did you expect this? Did you, ex- like, I was expecting a, a very motivated Moxley, but I mean, he, he certainly exceeded my expectations uh, in the Juice Robinson match and just uh, what, what we've seen so far uh, two matches in. No, I was completely surprised by how well he took to being in New Japan. I, I love everything he did in terms of like his gear. He was not a character anymore. He was the wrestler and he wants to show the dresser. He, especially he's wearing like the Asics wrestling shoes. I thought that was a nice touch as well. Um, he looks like a shoot fighter. Yeah. Like he looks like he should be in Bloodsport, the movie and, and like the, the, the wrestling event during WrestleMania week. Like I, really, um, I really like how shitty his trunks are like this is a guy there are no frills about this guy it's like he found the last pair of trunks that were in the gym somewhere and just threw on some wrestling boots to come out and fight you but and the other thing i i was really intrigued by is that i was i was talking with uh you know like jojo and joel and we're like okay he's, he's entered the gym he's not doing like his block matches and like who's His partner during the G1. That's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like hoping, okay, they do six man tags. Who get Narita, Shota Amino and Ren Narita and John Moxley, make it a team. Make, make, that should be their excursion, John. They should just move to Arizona with John Moxley. Renee can get like the, the spare rooms ready and they just do, they just hang out with him. He gets the bookings and independence throughout the United States and like they just fly back to Arizona to their house. Table for three. Uh, four, if you, we can count Renee. If you include R- Renee in there as well. That that video clip that they plugged with uh, Moxley and Shota Umino, the last I checked, it had over three and a half million views. And it's just... 50 of those might be mine. They may be. I mean, it was... Uh, I'm sure there were some some duplicate watches out there, but it's it's a fun little pairing. And you're right. Like, they needed to pair him with someone, and it might... Might as well be Umino attaching him uh, to Moxley, but uh, I think that I, I think Moxley's first performance. If anyone was skeptical of kind of where we just going to get 
uh, Dean Ambrose transplanted outside of WWE. Like he is throwing everything out essentially. And he's like a different person. Yeah. I, I'm very, very excited about the coming year with John Moxley in New Japan. Uh, let's talk a bit about best of the super juniors. Are there any uh, closing thoughts you have? Uh, top matches, top performers who really like up their stock, uh, who may be disappointed. Uh, are we, are we going to get, uh, Maybe Doki blew his chance to be uh, John Moxley's uh, – to be under his wing. Uh, I, I think Minoru Suzuki isn't going to let uh, Doki out of his sights. I think he, he really likes that guy. Um, I Honestly, there weren't any disappointments. The, oh, the only disappointment I had, honestly, John, and this has nothing to do with the in-ring, was like El Fantasmo, like throwing kids' hats into the into the stands, into the crowd. I, I – don't touch the fans, especially don't mess with kids, you know? And the, 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 the low light of that was like when he had, when he went to the kid with the, with, I think with Down syndrome and he grabs hat and he had that moment where he could just put, just put the hat back on the kid. But no, he threw it into the crowd and I was just like, what an asshole, like legit, what an asshole. I just thought that's such an asshole move. Not a, not a heel move, John. There's a, and I, he revealed himself to be a real life asshole. I, I think they talk to him because he he doesn't mess with the kids anymore. He just does it to adults, which whatever it is what it is. But I'm not a huge fan of that. But in the ring, he was fine. I, I liked a lot of the stuff, to be fair to him. But I think this is probably the, the greatest, best years they've ever had in the history of the tournament, John. So it was amazing. Every night had like at least two or three really good matches. And I maxed out like, you know, the grapple app with this thing. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, for best matches, okay, I have six matches that I rated like 4.75 or higher. First one is Shingo Takagi versus Sho uh, uh, oh, on May 13th. That match was so good. It's so good. It's just, and it's, it's going to, it's just going to be referred to back again and again between these two. It's going to make Sho a star down the line. Uh, the second match from May 23rd, Shingo Takagi versus Dragon Lee. Amazing. Such great chemistry between these two. Shigo Takagi's Dragon Gate, you know, background really helps him work with guys like Dragon Lee. Uh, from the next night, five, May 24th, Rocky Romero versus El Fantasmo. I thought the best storyline match of the entire tournament and probably Rocky Romero's greatest performance of his, of his career. I well, love that match. Rocky Romero was like, uh, you know, he wasn't the performer of the tournament, but man, did he come and just really deliver throughout this, this whole thing. Like, I, I thought this was, for for newer fans, like this was a real eye opener on Rocky Romero. Uh, I, I just thought he he really obviously took this thing really seriously and, and put out just phenomenal set of matches. You know, John, I gotta say, if he's in multi man tag matches and on the other side is someone like you know Yoshihashi, or on his team is Yoshihashi, or on the other side is like fucking Yujiro, if he's the pin eater, that's bullshit. Okay, he doesn't he does not deserve to be the pin eater anymore in multi-man tag matches and i'm and i'm staying firm on that uh next match from may 31st shingo Takagi versus taiji ishimori taiji ishimori with his i think has like a shoulder or neck injury shoulder, was yeah. yeah shoulder injury he had a great match with shingo Takagi, but not just because of shingo's because of shingo's performance in it but because Takagi, like ishimori sorry was you know overcoming his injury and like just going keeping up with 
you know, Takagi's pace in the match. So that I love that match. And it's for me, it's really intriguing because like I'm familiar with Ishimori from his like El Dorado days, you know, from the exodus of Ultimo Dragon from Dragon Gate and like him being a student of, you know, the Dragon System. And Takagi's another kind of student of the Dragon System, but not through Ultimo Dragon. So like there's a lot of like layers and shit in this that I that like were intriguing to me so I really love this match uh the next match is uh from uh June 3rd is Will Ospreay versus Risuke Taguchi I I thought this is maybe one of Taguchi's greatest matches ever Will Ospreay just had an amazing tournament like as I have three shingo well I'm gonna have four shingo matches I'm gonna mention but I gotta say Ospreay to me overall had the the most variety yes of working with different people and just killed it. Just absolutely killed it. And I loved all his matches, but the things, the thing is I just like these Shingo matches just a little bit more, but Osprey Taguchi like definitely gets in there. And finally, the best of the Super Juniors final, the main event, Will Osprey versus Shingo Takagi, probably my match of the year right now. It edged out like, you know, like I'm trying to think, uh, you know, a Kento Miyahara match that I was probably really high on this year. But, this is you my, know, it, it's at the top of my list. I think it's ahead of, uh, I, I've had Omega Tanahashi at the top of my list, and I, I think this one surpassed it. And yeah, this was just an unbelievable final, um, which I, I think actually, like, Osprey came back four days later and had that match with Dragon Lee, which I think under normal circumstances, um, you know, as I, it got like five stars, but I, I feel even then, like the Osprey Dragon Lee match, it almost felt like it still was somewhat in the shadow of this match just several days before. Like, it's insane the quality that both of these guys put forward in this tournament. And the thing we say about like Shingo and Sho can be a long term story, like, and to get both guys over. I think Osprey versus Shingo is also another long term story that's going to play out when Shingo becomes a legit main event player in New Japan. And he's going to become a legit main event player. He says he doesn't want to leave the junior division. He doesn't want to be considered a fake. He just wants to fight heavyweights. So I can see him and Osprey leading this charge of like kind of bringing like juniors into the main event mix without becoming official heavyweights. I, I can see if they go back to this match, they protect this match, John. This could, like, semi-main event or, under the right circumstances, main event one of those Tokyo Dome shows. Well, I think that's almost like the story that they're telling is that this junior heavyweight title is going to be main eventing something huge. Um, whether that is, you know, there's the natural story of Liger going for one more title. Um, if they can tell the right story. Um, I, I don't know if that's the best direction for his retirement or not, but it certainly could be done. Like, there's certainly... That story there of Liger doing one more huge main event chase for the title. I tend to think there's, they're building towards either Liger versus Minoru Suzuki, who's going to drop down to be a junior heavyweight, maybe, or Liger versus, like, you and I talked about this, I think, last time we were, we were talking about, like, you know, Chris Jericho could become, like, you know, someone that Liger could face. He could do an angle, but it seems like maybe they're going to do Jericho. Tanahashi, if they don't do it like in the fall, I can see them saving it for January as well. But Osprey Shingo or Osprey versus Hirobu, if they're saving Hirobu for the Tokyo Dome, Hirobu Osprey could legit headline, you know, one of the one of those dome shows, John. Very well could. Yeah, this was 
this was a tremendous, tremendous tournament um, that uh, if you go back, WH Park wrote uh, two great pieces up on the site going through his match recommendations and ones to check out and and ones to avoid as well. Those are just as important in this day and age. There were some. There were some. Uh, not maybe. And like, I'll say this. Dowkey for like, you know, like the for being an unknown and like not really setting the world on fire. I think he, there was an adjustment period to the New Japan ring for him. But you know what? I give that guy credit. He, he stepped up and I think he got himself a job with New Japan, at least until Desperado comes back. But I can see them keeping the dude around because I think he's a good utility player. And a lot of people might still not like him, but I came around on, on Dowkey. So I'm, I'm OK if he sticks around in New Japan. I, I'm a I'm a Dowkey guy now. So uh, for my top performers, I have five: Will Ospreay, Shiko Takagi, Dragon Lee, Rocky Romero, and Robbie Eagles. I I loved the mini story they were telling with Eagles, both with Osprey and then later with El Fantasmo. I thought if there was one guy that you know you can look at like individual like Shingo and Osprey, they had unbelievable tournaments, but they came in at a certain level. I think Robbie Eagles did the biggest uh, springboard, I think, in people's eyes uh, coming out of this tournament with the matches he had, and he's probably going to have a dynamite one uh, on the 29th with Osprey in Australia. That should be an incredible crowd for that title match. I think that is going to be his true coming out party. I thought the match, uh, the fourth of the all-block matches in the Makahari Messe uh, was going to be his coming out party, but they had it was more storyline driven with like El Fantasmo getting involved in there. I think they can have, I, I think they can have some storyline angle stuff in their Australia match, but I think Robbie Eagles in front of you know his hometown, his home country, the the, the Australian fans going nuts for him against Osprey is I think that's going to set him to the level of where Osprey was like after his first year in New Japan. That's how confident I about I am about. Robbie Eagles and like his potential in that company. Uh, some very sad news that took place over the last few weeks uh, included the passing of Atsushi Aoki back on June the 3rd. He was 41 years old. He was driving his motorcycle on his way to work uh, in Tokyo as he was entering a tunnel and crashed and then died at the hospital. He was at the time and still is being recognized as all Japan's junior heavyweight champion and will uh, be recognized as such until the six month mark in November. And then they'll uh, move on with the, to whatever they decide with the championship. But uh very tragic story. WH, did you want to just uh, speak a bit about Atsushi Aoki and kind of his role at, from going from Noah over to all Japan during, uh, you know, a really major power shift with the talent that moved over. Uh, that would be part of the burning faction. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say first, like, I thought you did a really nice piece on the website about him. And I thought you spoke really well about him, like the following hit the on, I think it was review, rewind a raw. Yeah, or, it was on a Monday that, yeah, the news came out. I thought you did a good job both like on the show and, and on the website as well. But, uh, you know, Sushiaoki, like, not not a super, like, you know, heralded guy in terms of like the other like Noah juniors of his era. Um, not, not seen at the level as like a Kenta Marafuji or even like a Yoshinobu Kanamaru or, you know, Kotaro Suzuki, but he was a really, really great wrestler. And I think one thing you have to think about with him is like how influential he was as an office person in all Japan pro wrestling. And he, he was 
got that job because of his closeness with Jinakia, but also because of like like he's such a great people person. That's what I get from all these tributes to him. People in the business talking about him is that he was so integral in terms of like dealing with the talent, both the Japanese talent and more importantly, to some degree, the the foreign talent that would come through Noah. Like I, you know, with people like Zack Saber Jr. saying he was so important for my development in the Noah Dojo. Chris Hero said the same thing. You know, uh, Eddie Edwards, same thing. <laughs> like they're just talking about how great he was in the dojo, and it's not a surprise that he was the head trainer in in all japan's dojo and like i think you're gonna see his legacy live on in people like dan tamara in um atsuki aoyagi in in yusuke okada like these are guys he trained directly and i think we're you know like as they grow into becoming good professional wrestlers and i'm confident that they will that they're gonna do his memory like proud as as far as as being like part of his legacy as a trainer uh but you know talking about his history he you know he started in noah in 2005 uh he left in 2012 with akiyama goshizaki kotaro suzuki and yosunuma kramaru in protest to noah firing kete kobashi um uh, before that he was an amateur wrestler and he was a former member of the japanese ground self-defense force uh and then later on he joined no so he was also like in the self-defense force same time as yuji okabayashi actually and they kind of I, I think they kind of knew each other at that time um uh he joined the noah dojo at the age of 28 it's a really late start for him john yeah, yeah. you know um his main trainer was jun akiyama and then that's a relationship that would uh last up to his death um, he debuted on December 24th at 2005. He teamed with Yoshinori, uh, Yoshinori Oda, who's one of his dojo mates, and they took on the team of Akira Tawe and Mitsuharu Mazawa. So right off the bat, John, he's, he's in there with two of the four pillars of all Japan, two of the founders of NOAA, two of the biggest stars of the company. They had high hopes for this guy. Yeah. You know, uh, that really stood out to me when I was like, you know, researching him that night and just that, that, that is how they introduced him. I mean, that was a big signal right off the bat of pairing him with, with who they did that night. And early in his career, he worked a ton of promotions. He worked in Zero One, Dragon Gate, WXW, IPW UK, AAA. He was one half of the AAA Tag Team Champions job. It's, it's amazing, like, all these kinds of pushes that Noah – got for him in other in other promotions in other countries it's it's really astounding uh he was in the 2009 best of the super juniors he got eight points uh he teamed with kota bushi really great tag team in the 2009 uh nippon tv junior tag league he went to the finals but they lost to kotaro suzuki and yoshinabu kanamaru who would become who win the whole tournament uh in 2009 he was also in the super j cup he lost to prince devitt now finn balor in the first round uh, he did this amazing trial series, John. It was called the Shining Magic 10-match series. And it started December 2007 and it ended in February of 2010. And these are the, the people he fought in this 10-match series, John. Number one was Jun Akiyama. Number two is Davey Richards, who he beat. It's the, only, it's the only win he got in the series. Number three is Kenta. Number four is Brian Danielson. Number f- uh, five is Yoshinari Gawa. Uh, number six is Kaz Hayashi. Number seven is Yoshinobu Kanemaru. Number eight is Jushin Thunder Liger. Number nine is Naomichi Marufuji. And number 10 is Minoru Suzuki. So they rolled, they rolled out all the stars for his 10 match series job. Damn. That's, uh, that's really going to, it just sounds like the, uh, the infinity gauntlet right there that he was running. Exactly. Uh, 
in like 2013, he went to Burning. He jumped to All Japan, where he he would stay. Uh, he, him, and Suzuki, Kotaro Suzuki, formed a very good tag team. They won the All Asia Tag Team Titles. Uh, I have a lot of notes for him, but uh, you know, like he he was just really important. Like you'll see this in like the Champions Carnival this year. He's the reason Joel Redman got a spot in the Champions Carnival because they wrestled each other one time in England. And he loved Joel Redmond so much that he said, I want to try to bring him. And they had a spot in the Champions Carnival. So he he campaigned for getting Redmond to come into Japan. And I'm hoping that, you know, like Redmond will come back and he'll become a star on the level of, say, a Dylan James or a Joe Doring. And, and I feel if they're going to keep bringing Johnny Valletta in, they, they can make room for fucking Joel Redmond, like who's actually a good wrestler. So I'm hoping that's going to happen. Um, and I think. Joel Redmond coming in, if if that happens and he becomes a star, a foreign star in the company, that's another great tribute and, you know, part of Aoki's legacy in the company. Uh, but just to wrap up, can I can I just say, like, I have a list of uh, 10 notable matches for people should check out if they want to, you know, discover, like, the how good of a wrestler uh, Atsushi Aoki was. So first one is... Uh, May 5th, 2009, he teams with uh, Takashi Sugiera against uh, uh, Goto and Okada, Hiroki Goto and Kazuchika Okada. This is before Okada becomes the Rainmaker. This is like early in, when he's still a young lion. In 2009, uh, July 25th, 2009, he teams with Kotobushi against uh, Kotaro Suzuki and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. Uh, uh, September 21st, 2009, uh, he fights Kenta in a singles match. In December 6, 2009, he takes on Naomichi Marafuji. Uh, he teams with Kenta on October 30th, 2010, and they take on the team of Eddie Edwards and Roderick Strong. Uh, April 25th, 2013, for the All-Asia Tag Team titles in All Japan, he teams with Kotaro Suzuki against the team of Minoru Tanaka and Koji Kanemoto. Um, on February 5th, 2014, he takes on Kotaro Suzuki in a singles match. Uh, with his regular tag team partner, you know, Hikaru Sato, he takes on the team of uh, uh, Isami Kodaka and, uh, uh, sorry, Yuki Miyamoto. I forget his first name. But they're the guys who are a tag team in Big Japan Pro Wrestling. And they fought them on July 29th, uh, 2016. Uh, he teams with Akiyama at the Naomichi Marafuji 20th anniversary show. And they take on the team of Takashi Sugiera and Daisuke Harada. I think the best match on that show. And finally... Uh, the last match I have for people to check out is April 4th, 2019 in the Champions Carnival. It's Asushiaoki versus Kento Miyahara, one of my favorite matches from that particular tournament. That's a great list uh, to go check out. I'd also recommend uh, our friends at the Eastern Lariat podcast. They also did a really great uh, career retrospective on him with uh, Dylan Harris and Striga running down uh, his, his entire career um, that dates to 2005. So you can check that out as well. Um, over the past month, we also got, this was a surprising one, at least for me, and that was Ultimo Dragon returning to Dragon Gate, appearing in a Dragon Gate ring, and was this one of those, uh, never say nevers for you, WH, that you thought ultimately there was business here to do with Ultimo Dragon, or was this such that the ramifications of this fallout that go back to 2004 were just going to be irreparable because Ultimo Dragon, I mean, you don't hear him do too many interviews, but he 
Chris Jericho did have him on maybe about a year ago, and it was a really fascinating discussion. And you could see, like, Dragon Gate was not something he really wanted to dive into, even though he is still so associated with uh, the remnants of Tori Yuman, which pretty much rose up as Dragon Gate after his departure. I was legit surprised at this like the, the storyline is that Masato Yoshino wants wanted involved with like of the, the company starting he thought okay well, we should like do something with him and so they would tease like you know angles with wrestlers that were still associated with Ultimo Dragon saying oh yeah he might come he might not come and then finally they say okay he's going to come back at one of the Cork and Hall shows recently and yeah, I don't know. The, the thing is with him is that, like, I think Dragon Gate moved away from Ultimo Dragon, like, you know, after a p- certain point when, like, his trainees were no longer, like, the the, the, the main crux of the, of the roster anymore. Like, mm-hmm. pretty much these days now, it's all these people who, who came from the Dragon Gate dojo, not the Toriyaman dojo. It had nothing to do with Ultimo Dragon. They're all, like, trainees of, like, Shima or, you know, like... Uh, you know, uh, Masaru Shino or Shingo Takagi or, you know, maybe to some degree, BB Hulk. These are the guys who are the train, who are training these dudes. Like now, Masaki Mochizuki is someone else in, in that, in that conversation. So there's not so much a connection with the current Dragon Gate roster. Like even the guys like Masaru Shino, even the guys like, you know, like, you know, Doi, they're not so connected with Ultimo Dragon. Shingo Takagi is the first, you know, graduate of the Dragon Gate's dojo he had nothing to do with ultimo dragon bb hulk had nothing to do with ultimo dragon they they were always affiliated with shima and magnum tokyo respectively um but yeah i was genuinely surprised because like there was such bad blood like from the dissolution of you know toriyaman during the time when ultimo dragon went to the wwe and president okamura and Shima and maybe some of the older wrestlers, maybe Don Fuji, maybe Masaki Mochizuki, were like, okay, we don't want to do have we don't want to have anything to do with Ultimo Dragon anymore. Let's create our own group. We have the resources, we have we can get the financial backing, and we have like the infrastructure to just take all this over from Dragon while he's in America working for the WB. And what do you see is ultimately? Do you feel that this is? Um going to be a long-term affiliation or do you think this is just going to be a short usage of ultimo and do some kind of program to to go out of this uh what do you see as like the long term of this relationship or at least the the temporary mending of fences well i actually recently watched the show where he came back john yeah. like where he made an appearance and that crowd did not know who he was or didn't care it died at slow death when <laughs> he came out they don't care about him john like i'm talking about the dragon gate fans they don't care about him he means nothing to them because there is a huge turnover rate i feel in dragon gate fandom where you have all these fans who might have crossed over from toriyaman but they might have left when shima left right mm. <laughs> and so all the fans not all the fans but i gotta say a good i gotta guess a good 90 percent of them don't know don't care about the involvement of Dragon Gate with the old Toriyaman, about with Ultimo Dragon. And I I think you could tell, like, in the eyes of all the all the guys in Dragon Gate in the ring with Ultimo Dragon at the time, they were like, oh shit, this didn't go how we planned. So I think they're gonna do something with him for Kobe World next month. 
their their big you know show of the year. And I think that's going to be it. I think a lot of fans like look at Ultimo Dragon and know him as that guy who wrestles in all Japan undercards in Korokin only. And, and, you know, they talk about him going to Mexico a lot. He doesn't have the same cachet, like, you know, like that you would imagine he would have had. And I think this is something that was miscalculated on the part of Dragon Gate uh, management and Ultimo Dragon, maybe himself. He's, he's a guy who does nothing when he wrestles in all Japan. He's a guy who has these small shows now, like his own Toyaman shows that any, but he does most of his stuff in Mexico, John. So like he's kind of out of sight, out of mind to a lot of the fans, especially the Dragon Gate fans. He's the kind of guy though, that I could see really having a bit of a U.S. indie run. Like if he could get into, you know, he's the guy I would totally see a game changer wrestling booking. Uh, I don't know if he would hold up in like a, a bola, but he seems like he would have more of a, a value amongst the late 90s nostalgic U.S. fans, more so even maybe than in, in Japan, as you're kind of describing this reaction received. I I think he – I don't know if he would survive a match with Joey Janela. Well, like, that's, that's who he would be booked against. It would be him and Joey Janela, which I, I would absolutely see that match taking place. Um, I see him – you know, like I see him doing those kind of family – wrestling indie shows that book like let's get Billy Gunn let's get Al Snow <laughs> let's get Ultimate Dragon let's you know let's have him do autograph session let's have him do you know like uh, something in like a talk battle with Team Lenko or something like that I don't see him doing any high level indies like where work rate is very important because I don't think his work rate exists anymore I've never seen it displayed on the all Japan shows that I've seen him work on. No one ever talks about him anymore. You, you, and fair play to credit. You've always been consistent with your, uh, just not understanding all uh, like the Ultimo dragon phenomenon. I used to like Ultimo dragon for a short period of time in, in WCW. Like when he was doing the feud with Regal for the television title, I liked that aspect of him. I liked a lot of the stuff in like the super J cup in 95 it's good stuff recent years no like john he just bores the shit out of me like i watch his matches and i'm like oh it's a good time to go to the bathroom oh i'm gonna see if i can get a t-shirt now like during all japan show i i am i have nothing not positive but not negative i'm just very indifferent about ultimo dragon i appreciate his legacy and i appreciate like what a pioneer he was i do but like if you're asking me do i enjoy watching his matches do i get excited if he's listed on all Japan undercard Corkin for no discernible reason. No, I'm not. I'm like, I'm checked out. I like, okay, Osama Nishimura, Ultimo Dragon, fucking Hikaru Sato, Masanobu Fuji. I, I like him. He's older than everyone else in the match, but I like him more than some of these other guys. Yeah, time to go to the bathroom. Time to go get a soft drink or beer or a hot dog. Or, John, you know, when, when you come to Corkin Hall, people are raving about the the fried chicken there. We got to get you some of the fried chicken at Cork and Hall. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm excited already. Um, let's, uh, let's finish off with a, with a few other topics here. Uh, did you end up getting to see this episode of the wrestlers? I did. It was fantastic. I really liked it. All right. So this is, uh, this is Damien Abraham's series. Uh, he is our weekly guest on the cafe hangout chatting about the series he hosts on Viceland. And the episode specifically that we're discussing is the one on stardom. And, what I really enjoyed is that if you are uh, – I, I would say whether you live in Japan or you follow the promotion abroad, 
you're probably familiar with the names, but I always I really enjoy whenever there's names that you consistently see wrestle, but you don't really know much about them. This went really in depth and into a lot of you know the the scandals in within stardom also looking at just the fan culture uh of who are watching these shows they they dove deep into like quite a lot of different aspects and had access to Rossi Ogawa and Mayu Iwatani who i think you come away with like what a what a story this woman has running away from home to become a wrestler yeah i mean i learned so much about Mayu in that and i'm a big fan of Mayu um so to, to hear that she had all these problems back in her home prefecture of Yamaguchi, she had problems with the police. That's why she was like, she says, she uses the word in Japanese, hikakomori, which means a shut-in, right? So she was a recluse. She didn't leave her house for two or three years. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> she does not project that as a wrestler, that she's so, like, she has social problems. She's friends with a lot of the stardom roster, like with, with Saki Kashima and Arisa Hoshiki. She's, they started all, they all started in the dojo together and they left, they came back, but they, they're always affiliated with her because she's good friends with them. Um, so yeah, she, that was really fascinating. Like, can I just say one thing that, like, I, I think I, I want to clear up about, like, the, the fan culture of stardom and, and like, Joshi in general here is that, yes, there's a lot of men. It's predominantly men. I will say, when I went to the Cinderella tournament back in gold, during Golden Week, John, I was so happy, and I mentioned this to you, I'm sure, like, when we talked about that show, at that show, and it made me so happy because I, I wanted to spell this kind of image that I think a lot of Westerners have, and, like, and I think Damien not fell into the trap, but I don't think, like, he... He doesn't have the like kind of experience I do, like to to say like you know it's strange to Western people. It's strange to see all these men, and they're all of a certain age. Yes, I know it looks strange, but like I go to these shows. I'm of a certain age. I'm a male. I, I I don't feel like I'm creepy. I don't feel like I'm there to sexualize or objectify these women. I go there to watch the wrestling, you know, and I because they're great, amazing wrestlers. Like all the women in this company are like, you know, like the the worst one is like can be better than like a lot of wrestlers I see in like American wrestling or even in Japanese wrestling. So I I think a lot of these guys are there because they're in they 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 you know they're part of that kind of fandom that likes you know idol culture, which is very very prevalent here, and and that's also something in the on the music side of idol culture. A lot of people get freaked out if they want to go see, say, AKB48, which is the big idol group in Japan. That predominantly, if you go to a concert, is at the Tokyo Dome. Probably, you know, like say there's fifty thousand for argument's sake, John. We're gonna say forty thousand of them are men, okay, of varying ages from like their early twenties to maybe their late fifties, okay. That's what you see in Joshi, not just in Stardom. You see this in Marvelous. You see this in Sendai Girls. You see this in Seed Lining, Oz Academy. You, you see a lot of dudes in the crowd. I don't think they're creepy. I think people project this image. I see a lot of this projection on Twitter, in Joshi Twitter, like, oh, these guys are creepy, or they're all sexualizing these girls. It's, maybe they're, they, some of them might be. I don't know. But I never get that feeling per se. I especially don't get that feeling now since I've been to so many stardom shows myself you know, and other Joshi shows that like, Kate, like, yeah, they have a different way of expressing their admiration and their appreciation 
for these women, for these talents, for these wrestlers. But I don't think it's that much different when I see like a row of middle-aged women going nuts for Tanahashi and they have like the fans with his face on it. Like, why do they, they, that's innocent and this isn't like, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of this kind of weird, you know, gender bias, I suppose. And because of like Western culture kind of just projects their mores and their, their values onto like these Japanese fans. And yes, sometimes I'm at shows and I'm like, yeah, you're normal, you're normal, you're normal. I don't know about you, but I don't know. So I, I don't, I don't want to judge because they could say the same thing about me. They see Damien at these shows. They, they might think, Oh, what's he doing here? You know, like, Oh, it's just some other foreigner who likes Japanese women or something. Cause that's, that's the thing there too, you know? So I just want to say, like, if you think that they're all like creepy dudes who are like, you know, pervert on the, on the towns of stardom or other Joshi promotions, you're, you're probably wrong. I, I'm going to say you're probably wrong. You're far from the truth. They just like these wrestlers and they express it in a way that's common in Japan in idol culture. Do, do you feel that as, you know, if you are, Rossi Ogawa that you do have that in mind though that you are presenting to to a large male audience that that is going to direct how you present some of your characters and you bring up like great points like there is like like Dragon Gate draws from a significant female group uh when it comes to you know AAA go go through their history like they've always had kind of that that stripper character that is designed for it's directly targeted at that audience. I really don't see like uh, I watch the Stardom product, and I do not watch a product that is like I ever feel like these women are sexualized. That's just me watching that. I that tone is really not hit with me that they are trying to um, you know specifically aim at me being a male versus whether a female would be watching this. I, I think the closest wrestler who would. Try to like who might project like sexuality is not so similar in Oedo type, but I think she does it more in a kind of like ironic way. It's not really like something she's really promoting as like, hey, I'm sexy, look at me. It's like, hey, you all think I'm cute, right? Yeah, okay, yay, thanks, you know. But she has a side job where she, I think she, she meets a lot of her fans at bars and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's very common as well. But yeah, like it, it happens. Like men are marketed to women, you know, that's, that's, that's wrestling. Let's face it. Like, and women, even in 2019 are marketed towards men. Rossi Ogawa did not create like idol, like idol culture, Joshi Perez, like that, that, that happened in before stardom. That was in Arison, you know, that, that, cause they had, they thought we have to say Joshi because Joshi was was like in a really bad state in the early 2000s. Because I know because I was I was living in Japan and like, yeah, we had Oz Academy, we had Gaia and those were doing well. But they weren't like on a verge of going back to the, the, the heights of, you know, Big Egg Universe and Tokyo Dome. They were going to get back to the levels of all Japan women anytime soon. So like there are some women wrestlers who thought, hey, idol culture is big. Like there's groups like Morning Musume and these other groups who are pop groups, pre-manufactured pop groups. They they you know they pre- present these models and actress types of characters to their fans and they do really well. Maybe we can do that with wrestling. So yeah, Rossi Ogawa did that with that was one of his ideas with Stardom, but it's also Fuka's idea too. She she was part of that system of idols 
becoming wrestlers. And she thought, you know, her, I think it's Nanae Takahashi and Rasu Ogawa, they formed Stardom together. So it's these two women and him. Like a lot of people like to just project onto him as well because of his age and his image that he's just exploiting all these girls. I, I don't feel that way myself because like, like take a look at Azumi in the, in that documentary, her mother's right there. She's going to all these shows. She's not letting her daughter do anything that she feels is going to be harmful to her daughter. And I don't, I think that goes the same with all the girls who are under the age of 20 that go to these shows that their parent, one of their parents is probably like, you know, going there. They all consented to them joining stardom. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh before we wrap up, you went to the New Japan House Show on Friday night in Numazu. Uh, tell us a bit about your live event experience. Yeah, you know, this is not shown on New Japan World. And I think these guys decided to let's just go have fun and not worry about storylines. And let's just like do something for this live crowd. Because, you know, like you hear stories sometimes of like people going to house shows and they just, you know, phone it in or whatever. I, I never felt. Any of these matches, anyone phoned it in. I, I felt that they were the, the wrestlers were really happy to perform and not worry about being on television, being streamed to like you know like all the subscribers of New Japan World across the country. They could just perform for these fans. And a couple of like things that I took away from the show. One is that my God, Okada is willing to take Alicia's <laughs> beating even out of house show. So he's paired off with. Minoru Suzuki in the six-man tag. Uh, or it was just a regular tag. But, you know, they do, they do the walk and brawl into the crowd. Minoru Suzuki, and they're, they're doing it like two feet away from me, John. Minoru Suzuki grabs the guardrail. Ed throws it on him. He legit, it legit lands on him. He's not controlling that. <laughs> I was like, God damn. Okada, you don't have to do this, dude. And then Minoru Suzuki throws a fan off a chair, <laughs> grabs that chair starts walloping the guardrail <laughs> and i'm like dude there's only like 500 people here you don't have to do this it's amazing the second point i want to make is my god hiroshi tanashi is so over with women still like you wouldn't believe all the women i'm gonna say over the age of 35 just got up and ran over to where they knew he was gonna make his entrance it was amazing to watch uh, th- uh the third point i want to make it's about i gotta say this about lance archer i think he could be a player i really really do but the thing is and i've seen this at other live shows he does the yelling he tells fans to shut up he goes to try to scare people john all i hear is laughter you know they don't think of him as like a monster heel they think of him as a comedy act and i'm not saying this to be mean I'm just being objective statement. Like everyone around my section is laughing at his, his act. And I just think, dude, change something about yourself. Like you don't, I think the thing with him, he tries too hard to be quote unquote, a heel to the point where it's like, he becomes like this comedic cartoonish version of what they imagine a, an American heel wrestler is supposed to be like, instead of actually being, a monster, which is, I think he, it's not that hard for him to just tweak it. He could be a monster. He could be someone that they could go to, like, instead of, say, someone like Bad Luck Fale, you know, they could go to him and I, the matches would be better. You know, he could be in the G1 instead of Fale. He could be that guy that could be a threat to anyone, but still not be hurt by taking losses. But he, 
you know, but he just tries too hard. And, and, it, and it's painful for me to see this because I did, there was a point when he first formed Killer Lee Squad with Dave Boy Smith Jr. that I thought, oh, okay, I'm into this. I like this. But then it just went pear-shaped because he, he had to spit on people. They took that away from him. Then he's trying too hard, yelling at people. I just want him to like, just think about what he does outside the ring and tone it down. I think he could be so much more if he did less, you know? He's someone that, um, if you go back when he was in the 2014 G1, like again, not, not the performer of the tournament, but man, he really impressed me. That was when I really got Lance Archer that, uh, for those that uh, their, their reference point is, TNA or that brief run he had in WWE, uh, seeing him in that singles route. And I agree with you. I think him and, him and Davey Boy Smith Jr. are a great team together. They're just really, they're not a priority tag team in New Japan. And it's pretty clear. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's certainly something there with, with Lance Archer. And given the fact that he's like become like the de facto local promoter in Dallas for them, uh, I feel he's got to have some, notable spot on that show i'm i would not be surprised if he ends up with a spot in the g1 and we are talking here before the participants have been announced so uh we're we're playing with the time continuum today (laughs) i i think his performance in the new japan cup like definitely like helped him get a spot in the g1 the thing is is like you know who are you going to take out you know of the g1 we'll find out as of this recording, we they have they haven't made the announcement, but I I who they I, Minoru Suzuki they gonna take him out, Togi Makabe, Yoshi Yoshihashi I could see them possibly possibly taking out. Uh, they're definitely not putting Yujiro back in there. Uh, what about Yano? Is he in this year? I always like Yano being in there. I think he's he has a value, a, a lot of value to be honest. Like I think that really breaks up stuff, but um, I, I guess it depends when you're. You're, when you're bringing in all these these new guys like Moxley and Osprey and Takagi and Kenta, um, unless you're going to expand the field, so I feel we should they talk could do that because we're, we're just going to get people like yelling at their uh, uh, listening devices <laughs> as they have the list right in front of them. <laughs> Probably right? we'll we'll stop about that. We'll find out when everyone else says, and then we can talk about it maybe during like our G1 primer if we're going to do one again this year. How, how about the commentary team for the? Cork Q and Hall shows this weekend. The the star maker here, WH Park, uh, presenting your commentary team. Mavs Gillis and Chris Charlton this weekend. There you go. Like two people. Like obviously, I I, I did Japanese audio wrestling with Chris Charlton. He got the job there. I'm not saying that I got him that job. I did not. He did that on his own. But yeah, Mavs Gillis. Like we were talking, and I, I I don't know if you've listened to the episode yet, John. But his the way he got his job, just amazing. He just took a chance, sent a tape to Harold May. They called him back. You know, he's on. He's at the airport, about to go back to Canada. Hey, you want you want to work for us? <laughs> yeah, great. Keep it a secret, okay? Okay. And I gotta say, to reference that episode of Cruel, Cruel Summer, he has the he had a great story about like hanging out with Lanny Poffo. They were all set. We we joked about Rivera, John, but they were all set to go to Rivera. I think Lanny Poffo could have got a jacket, could have got a Rivera state jacket, but Rivera was closed oh. great stories go listen to that episode of cross over mavs is great on that show just you can hear him talk about rec- getting a new passport because it got soaked when he went to see the okada Suzuki match in yokohama in the rain he went to that really good stuff i'm so happy for mavs i i really enjoyed the stuff he did last year 
Um, and I'm, I'm excited to like, hopefully, um, that he can get more work with New Japan. Like as much as, you know, I think Kevin Kelly is very, very important to the English commentary team. I think Kevin Kelly, unless he's going to move to Japan, I think the guy needs a break once in a while. It's, it's really intense when you see that he's there for the whole best of the super juniors, presumably doing the entire G1 again. Like that's, that's a big commitment, uh, for, for anybody, uh, regardless of, you know, um, just how, how much you can, you can do that, you know, as this product is doing more and more Eng- English commentary, you need to be able to have that, that rotation of guys. It's just a necessity. Oh, can I tell you my Kevin Kelly story? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I went to, dominion on june 9th but i i arrived in osaka on june 8th on the, on the saturday and i went to uh koshian stadium which is the big baseball stadium in in osaka which is the home of the hashin tigers with jojo remy and his wife christine we went there and we we're sitting in the bleacher section it was very fun john if you if we have a chance you know, i don't know what the season will be like but we should try to go see a japanese baseball game it's these fans are amazing like they have songs for every player, each 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 team. Like the, there are visiting fans that are in each stadium. They have songs for their team. The home team fans have songs for their team. It's very very fascinating. But as we're sitting there enjoying the third inning, I say, I see, I look over and I see this. Oh, there's some another foreigner walking upstairs. Hey, he looks familiar. Ah, oh, it's Kevin Kelly. <laughs> oh, who's that behind him? Ah, oh, it's Juice Robinson. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and I got to say, Juice Robinson is not a professional because he was not selling the beating he suffered at the hands of John Moxley at the Best of the Super Junior Finals like three days earlier. He was he looked perfectly fine. He was walking in perfect health. Shame on you, Juice Robinson. You should be selling that even at a baseball game on the day before. Hey, man, that, that tail uh, ball he landed on after that balcony dive, I bet he was sitting in, in absolutely gruesome pain. He had a couple of beers down. I think, I'm sure he was fine. Well, whatever needs to be done. That was that was a very punishing match from the looks of things uh, last week. All right. Well, um, actually, just before we uh, we end off, uh, this past week marked 10 years since uh, Mitsuharu Masawa passed away, uh, 46 years old, during a tag match in Hiroshima, teaming with uh, Goshi Ozaki against uh, Akatoshi Saito and another uh, performer who has since passed away that being uh, bison smith uh, an enormous story at the time and this week allowed people i think to reflect upon masawa and i think as much I, I like i use the word influential for masawa because i think it spans a lot of a generation of people that uh were mesmerized by this guy as a performer that emulated him but i think also a cautionary tale that i remember having this discussion at the time of whether this would be um a bit of a pushback when it came to the physical demands and it's hardly been that. Um, and you know, it goes right back to our Kota Bushi discussion. Like it wasn't one bump that caused this for Mitsuharu Masawa. It was a career of them and just taking one final one that he was unable tragically not to get up from. I mean, it, you know, you have to factor in that he was taking a lot of pain pills. Like his, his wife wrote a book about this, I believe. And, she she revealed like he was like taking all this medication because of the the punishment he put himself through during his career. Um, it was like his, him gaining a lot of weight, so he couldn't he didn't have as much body control anymore. 
Um, when I heard about it, notorious chain smoker as well. I mean, yeah, he was not living the most healthy life and had a lot of pressure on him to like stay there because the company needed him. Yeah. I mean, he, he felt this pressure because, you know, I mean, I'm going to say something to the effect of like, they never gave those younger guys, like your Morishimas, your Marafuji's, your Kenta's. Even your Goshi, you know, Go came, you know, he became champion after Misawa died. So like, or just as, you know, just before he died or something. But like, you know, like they always went back to him and Kobashi and even Tawe. They never stuck with those guys. And I think if, you know, they were given a chance, they didn't know what management didn't panic so much when they tried Marafuji or Kenta or Morishima or Rikio, that there might have been. A different story i don't know but i when he when he died and i heard i was just so the wind was sucked out of me because he was so important to my fandom of japanese wrestling him kawada and kobashi and tawe all those guys were like just you know they just drew me in because of like how amazing they were how hard-hitting and epic and emotional their matches were and then i i know i gotta say i felt a sense of guilt about like i enjoyed all these matches that destroyed his body, you know, essentially, you know, and, and do I still enjoy a hard hitting match that is done in the quote unquote Kings road style? Yes, I do. I, I, I can't help it myself. Back you know, to our discussion. Like there is like, that is a negotiation you have to have with yourself. No, lo- looking at that as a, as a prime example of what the effects are of what long-term this, this can do in an absolutely horrible circumstance. And but I will say this about myself that, you know, when I see like these kinds of backdrop, you know, suplexes happening, I, I don't like, whoa, that's amazing. I, I think, oh, I hope that guy's OK. I, I, that's my automatic reaction these days, because I I don't I've never seen anyone die in the ring. I hope I never see that happen. You know, that's my big thing. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to see it on TV. I certainly don't want to be in a building where some tragedy befalls a wrestler. I, you know, because of a move gone awry. So I, you know, but there's, there, like you said, John, there's no change. People still do all these dangerous moves. And, you know, one thing that I think was revealed recently, like on the, you know, the Noah Twitter, I believe, is that, you know, not, Masawa wrote a letter to be given to the wrestler if he died in the ring. He, he wrote this letter, John, that, that it's, has, it would, has to be given to the person who might be in the ring with him when he dies. And it was given to Akatoshi Saito, of course. And it, it basically said, like, don't – it's not your fault if I die in the ring. It's not your fault. Don't blame yourself. Continue on. Wrestling is beautiful. You, you know, like, it's just trying to, like, absolve anyone who would be involved with his death to, like, don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. It's – my decision to be in this ring. So it, I, I don't like, it's both saddening and I think a really nice thing for him to do without knowing like if he was going to die in the ring or not, but just he, he had that, you know, that in his back pocket, literally, you know, that if this happens. Yeah. A very, um, it was a very sad end to someone who was, I, I mean, people will still to this day regard as uh, one of the greatest of all time. So we want to make a brief mention of that this week. So that's going to bring an end to the show. But uh, this is the weekend of WH Park 
already up on the site this weekend. We have two new editions of Cruel Summer uh, with Martin Bushby, who joined WH to chronicle the 1995 final of the G1. And then Striga was on earlier today chatting 1996, the big Ricky Choshu year. And uh, these are going to be dropping every Saturday and Sunday morning throughout the summer as uh, WH Park takes over post-wrestling this summer. Yeah, you know, should, should we? Do you want a preview? Should I tell you who's ne- next weekend? Yes. Who is uh, who is on on deck? Some guy named Braden Harrington. Oh dear, he's already you apo- know him? he's preemptively apologized for his episode, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't I don't know why. I thought it was fine. I thought he and I had a really nice conversation. Uh, and then uh, uh, Dylan Dylan Fox actually, not Dylan Harris. He changed his name, John. So uh, from the Eastern Lariat will be on. So me and Braden will be talking about Kensuke Saki versus Hiroyoshi Tenzan, and from 1997. And then Dylan and I will be talking about the very interesting and very cool one of my favorite matches I've seen. Uh, of this, of all the matches I've seen so far, G1, Shinya Hashimoto versus Kazuo Yamazaki. Have you seen this match yet, John? No, I've not. Okay, please watch it because I think this match is definitely in your wheelhouse because you cover MMA. It is a very heavily MMA influenced match. I I feel like definitely in the shoot style, the UWFI style. So I love this match, John. It's like I've watched it actually twice since doing the review, just to kind of dissect it. And I'm just like, my God, Kazuo Yawazaki is, was a fucking awesome wrestler. I wish he was a bigger star. It wasn't meant to be. But I'm going to say this. Dylan gives a lot of background on Kazuo Yawazaki. If all you know him from is sitting at the New Japan Japanese commentary table looking like he's asleep because he's the older bald man who looks like he's like got his eyes closed and is taking a nap. That's Kazuo Yawazaki. Please don't like make that your lasting impression of him. He was an amazing professor. Go watch the sorry, what was that <laughs> again? That was uh 1998 Shinya Hashimoto versus Kazuya Yamazaki. And then listen to me and Dylan talk about it, as well as you know me and Braden talk about the year before. Awesome. So yeah, you can you can see all those finals on New Japan World, and then your listening companion, Cruel Summer with WH Park dropping every Saturday and Sunday morning here at postwrestling.com. You can follow him at WHPark9, the number nine, and let him know how much his audio contributions are appreciated. So, WH, as always, great to chat with you, and we'll do this again probably right as the G1 is st- – we, we got to do a big G1 preview. I think that should be uh, – maybe we'll even get Way to jump on with us for the next one. Yeah, that's that would be awesome. I'll do a lot of research for that as well. Awesome. Looking forward to it, and thanks to everyone for listening to us. And Monday night, Wei and I will go through the uh, the G1 participants for those that are uh, yelling at us. Uh, but thank you, as always, for listening, and we'll speak with you in a couple of weeks.